Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. It's not every day the Veterans Affairs Department comes up with a new insurance program. In fact, last year was the first time in 50 years. For a progress report and what it took to launch it, we turn to the executive director of the insurance service at the Veterans Benefits Administration, Dan Keenahan. Mr. Keenahan, good to have you with us. Morning, Tom. Thanks for having me on. All right. This new program is called what exactly and who is it designed to serve? So the VA or the Veterans Affairs has launched Veterans Affairs Life Insurance, or as we like to call it, VA Life. And it's open to all service-connected veterans aged 80 and under with any level of service-connected disability, 0% to 100%. And for veterans who are age 81 and older, they need to apply for a service-connected rating before they turn age 81. And then they have a two-year timeline to request enrollment. So basically anybody under 80 can have this life insurance? Correct. Anyone with a service-connected rating. We launched this program in response to a call from veterans and veteran service organizations who were looking for a life insurance program that didn't have time limits uh, to sign up and had higher levels of life insurance coverage available than what we had currently offered. This one is a whole life insurance program that goes up to $40,000 in increments of $10,000. Got it. And when you say they have to have a veteran's rating, what does that mean exactly? So when uniformed service members separate from their uniformed service, they have an opportunity to apply to the Department of Veterans Affairs Veterans Benefit Administration for a service-connected rating on a disability that may have been incurred during their service. And we provide the life insurance that supports veterans who have these service-connected ratings. We also provide life insurance for those who currently serve. And we have 11 different programs that provide life insurance, including service members group life insurance and veterans group life insurance, which total about $1.5 trillion of coverage across 5.6 million lives. This new program, though, is only for those with some degree of rating. Correct. Because everybody is insured at some point in their military career. I remember, you know, when my father passed away at 92, long after serving in World War II, just a few years ago, we got a check from Veterans Affairs for $5,000. Everybody's got that. Yes. It's tremendous because our insurance service has existed for over 100 years and dates back to World War I. And in each era, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and now today, we have introduced different life insurance programs in order to meet the needs or the changing needs of our veterans and their survivors. And it's unique because service-connected veterans aren't always eligible for commercial life insurance. And VA provides this as a means of protection to provide insurance at a rate that is commensurable with what you can find in the private sector without any additional cost due to the service-connected nature of their disability rating. Right. That was my question. This is something that is hard to obtain for those with a rating commercially because commercial don't want to insure people that they might have to pay out for. In general, we find that our actuaries look at what's available in the private sector and then how can we provide something that you know meets or is better than the value 
that's provided to honor not only the service of the service member, but to be able to help them, you know, see it as a benefit that they've earned through their service. We're speaking with Dan Keenahan. He's the director of the insurance service at the Veterans Benefits Administration. And this was in reaction to a congressional statute, a law passed to create this program a couple of years ago. Yes, the law was enacted in 2022, and we worked with the Congress in order to implement it in a way that provides a superior customer experience. We've seen automation of the application process at levels that are higher than 93% this calendar year alone, and we've integrated it with VA Profile in order to ensure that you know veterans don't have to put in unnecessary information, and veterans are known customers and we can be able to meet their needs. We've had some veterans who sign up saying this is the easiest benefit they've ever applied for with the VA. And we found that veterans are very responsive to the online tool, especially when it comes to updating their beneficiaries for life-changing events. And we appreciate the support of the Congress as this was, as you mentioned, uh, part of the Johnny Isaacson and David Rowe Veterans Health Care and Benefits Improvement Act of 2020. And how many people have signed up so far? We've had over 34,000 veterans sign up for this. And it's really exciting because just after one year of the program being available, we've achieved over $1 billion of coverage. Okay. And you called it whole life. And that's an instrument that you don't find that much anymore commercially almost like a savings that has value at the end and it accrues, I guess you'd call it equity over time. Those are not very common anymore in the commercial market. We offer both term life and whole life, and we work with veteran service organizations and veterans in order to provide education as to how insurance can complement their overall financial planning. Whole life is a way for veterans to be able to invest in their future because VA life builds cash value after the first two years. It also, unlike term life insurance, has fixed premiums, which means the younger you are when you sign up, that is the premium that you will pay for the rest of your life. Unlike term life insurance, when costs often increase in five-year increments. And then finally, the real value is that there is a cash component to this. And so veterans like to know, you know, that there might be some longer term value. There is an interest earned against that cash value. And then not yet for VA life, but for our existing programs, veterans are able to take loans against that cash value. Or when the policy matures, they actually get that cash value returned to them as a matured endowment. And so it's part of an overall financial planning picture for veterans that is an alternative to term life. And how does it work for Veterans Benefits Administration? That is to say, do you simply offer this, but there's a commercial outfit that's actually operating it in the background, or is VBA its own insurance company? And if so, how come you don't have a 100-story skyscraper somewhere? So I'm really pleased to say we have a few more than 300 VBA employees who work primarily out of Philadelphia who service all these policies. We have our actuaries, we have our financial team, we have our policyholder services, we have our own phone center, and we run it efficiently enough that we're able to provide it at a value that meets or exceeds what's available in the private sector. 
unlike the private sector, we don't need a hundred story uh, skyscraper in order to let people know we're here. But we find veterans and survivors really appreciate the customer experience that we give them. And we're really seeing positive returns through trust scores through what we call V-signals, which is our customer experience data. And veterans are really trusting VA to provide high quality life insurance, just like when they were in uniform, we previously provided their life insurance coverage. And within VBA then, is there a fund of dollars somewhere so that when you do have to pay out a benefit, a death benefit, that it's there? So based on our actuarial determinations, we build up a cash reserve. And so this program was designed in order to be fully self-supporting. And so that means the more veterans that sign up, uh, the better it is going to support other veterans over time. And we're very efficient and effective in being able to deliver benefits that the veterans are able to count on and, and, and trust the VA to have that, that value there. Dan Keenahan is director of the insurance service at the Veterans Benefits Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. 
Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote. 
which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. 
And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.